Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Episode 65 of The Bowery Boys, Spooky Stories of Old New York. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there, and welcome to The Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. Last year, one of our most popular podcasts was our Ghost Stories of New York. So we are doing our little sequel. This week. This year, we're calling it Spooky Stories of New York. Right, because there aren't always ghosts in these, but on this cool, crisp October night, we're letting our minds wander off into spooky places in New York City. Ch- chills are running up my, my arm here. We have the room decorated with candles and little pumpkins. Yeah, Greg, and it, Greg brought in a squash. <laughs> it's very, very festive and kind of spooky. Spooky here a, on the recording table. Obviously, something is tr- is conspiring to stop this show because we've had a breakdown in one of our microphones and our <laughs> mixing board. We had no internet c- connection there for a while. So. Really, the, the spirits are working against us. It's almost like they don't want us to make this podcast. Uh, I feel like there's a poltergeist in the room. I, one of some of our papers begin just to fly out the window. <laughs> then I'm just going to run. My head started spinning around. <laughs> then we might just abruptly stop the show before we jump in. To this, however, we have a decidedly non-spooky thing to tell you. We have ha- we're having our first live event this Tuesday. If you are in New York City, we would love it if you would come by. It is a New York City trivia night. We are hosting it in association with the Municipal Arts Society, one of New York's oldest and finest cultural institutions. Um, it'll be two hours of of hot New York City trivia. Well, everyone will be broken up into teams. Come and bring your friends. And there'll be prizes. Right. And Greg said it's this Tuesday, October 14th, 2008 at 6.30 p.m. At Common Ground. That is at 206 Avenue A between 12th and 13th Streets. We'd love to see you there. Yeah, it should be a blast. But now back to this show. It's all about spooky tales of old New York. Greg, we're all sitting around shivering, ready to be spooked. The windows open, the wind lightly blowing your curtains. Well, Tom, if you've ever walked down a New York street, like, you know, really late at night, I'm sure you have, three, have, three yeah, in the morning, down, down a street, like, say, of old brown stones, these old, beautiful, rustic buildings, each one has a thousand different stories to tell. 
But if you ever gave it thought sometimes that like for all these nostalgic things that you think and you see these buildings, there's actually a lot of things that happened behind those doors that aren't so nostalgic, that aren't so rustic. Behind a lot of those walls and a lot of those doors are some tragic stories, some sinister, sometimes maybe even some evil stories behind mm-hmm. those very doors. Have you even gotten a chill down your spine, like thinking that you may have seen something out of the corner of your eye, maybe just like in a stairwell or in a window of just like an old, really fancy turn of the century building? You'd turn and it's, it's, it wasn't a face. You thought it was a face, but you're still not sure. So it's with that mindset that you're creeping I, me out here, Greg. <laughs> that I want you. It's with that mindset, Tom. Yes. That I, I want our listeners and you. And when I hear your stories, I will be in this mindset as we go into these tales. The first one is, in fact, on a street of brownstones. In fact, has often been called one of the most beautiful blocks in Manhattan. But I can call this building one of the most haunted places in Manhattan. It's so frightening. It's so unspeakable that it has its own nickname, the House of Death. Why is it called the House of Death? Well, you've, you've hear, heard a lot of stories about you know, a, a ghost haunting whatever, a hotel or a, or a theater. The House of Death is haunted by 22 ghosts. Oh, my word. At least 22 ghosts. That's like a hotel of death. <laughs> it's a hotel of death. A hostel, a hostel. of death, if you will. <laughs> you know, my observation, well, just b- before I jump into why, I just need to tell you, because I, I went by this building just a couple days ago, um, you know, it, as it was getting dark and the streets were kind of empty. And curiously enough, all the street lamps up and down the street had just turned on, except for the one that was right in front of this building. Now, this neighborhood, this block... It's really one, it's an old neighborhood of just, of astounding wealth. Right there at the corner, just a just a few steps away, is the Church of the Ascension, um, which was built in 1841 and was designed by our friend Richard Upjohn, who I mentioned in last week's episode as designing the gate at Greenwood Cemetery. And w- what's the intersection? Is that Sixth Avenue? Or? That's Fifth Avenue. The Church of the Ascension is actually on Fifth Avenue, uh-huh. so that's just a few steps away. So there's all these beautiful brownstones up and down. There's some great James Renwick brownstones just up the block, in- uh, including uh, places that. Marshall Duchamp has lived in, uh, Dashiell Hammett, and more recently Kathleen Turner lived just on this block. 14 West 10th is just a little different. It's bl- actually blocked by some trees, so all the other buildings are just these beautiful, fabulous buildings, but this is blocked. It was built in 1856, and it's a Gothic Revival home. Now, it had a very famous person that lived in it, Tom, from the year 1900 to 1901, Mark Twain lived there. Wow, for now, one year. For Well, yeah, I mean, he lived actually in two or three places throughout Manhattan. This is the only excellent place that's still standing in Manhattan that, that Twain actually lived in. He had actually come back from Europe on a famous lecture tour. Most of his famous works by this time had already been written, but he was, you know, kind of living off his own glory by this time. The term House of Death actually comes from a chapter title in Huckleberry Finn, the chapter title being The House of Death Floats By. Now, when he lived there in 1900, he thought the house was haunted. He claimed it himself. And did he have the whole house? Was it... Was it a residential unit, or was it divided up into apartments or something like that? He was leasing the house, and he lived there with his wife. It's a very big building, so if he did live there by himself, he would have had a lot of space to see ghosts. 
So Twain ended up moving out, in fact, to a house in the area in the Bronx that we know as Wave Hill today. But the house must have some kind of a super, a paranormal pool or something, if you will. As if maybe like anyone who's ever lived there eventually goes to haunt it. Because Twain himself is now known to haunt the house at 14 West 10th Street. In particular, he haunts the stairwell and has been seen in the stairwell, slowly strolling up the steps. Or, you know, maybe imagine if you were visiting someone or lived there now, you're walking up the steps and you look up at the very top and there's just a ghostly... Creepy Mark Twain standing there? ...figure in white standing there, just sort of looking down at you. So throughout the 20th century, there's been a lot of very strange occurrences there, according to legend. Um, There was a murder-suicide in that building in that very decade after Twain moved out. There was a female poet who died there in the 1940s. It was so renowned for being haunted that in the 1950s, a psychic was actually brought in to sort of confirm some of these rumors. Now, if if you believe in psychics or not, you know, it it doesn't really matter. But it's basically to this point in the... The psychic confirmed... It was, I mean, the Oh, the verdict she confirmed. Was, yeah. She confirmed. And it's, you know, at least reputation-wise, it was so known as a ghost house that this the, that she was brought in. Now, recently, it's this has even been a site of a horrible tragedy very recently, and probably one that you remember from the news. In 1987, there was a call made, that, and the police came over to this building, and when they, for a disturbance that was happening in an apartment. Because it had been divided up into apartments. By this time, yes. So the police came to the door, and a woman opened, and at first the police thought that she was a really old woman. But, in fact, she had just been savagely abused. And so the police opened the door, and there was a man standing with a lifeless body of a young girl. In fact, this is the story of poor Lisa Steinberg, who was thrown against the wall and was was savagely beaten by her father, Joel. And the woman in this case, her name was Hedda Nussbaum, and she was a former editor in New York City. This case took national headlines because it really put a focus on child abuse. And this poor girl was a foster child, and she wasn't really really legally supposed to be with him, but he was living there and and treated her and the whole family just absolutely horribly. So she ended up dying. He ended up going to prison and spending 17 years there, but he was released in 2004. So this is a very, it's it's a very heart-wrenching story. And it brought a lot of attention to child abuse and became sort of a clarion call for a lot of people. By the way, I went to a message board and, and as recently as two months ago, um, some ghost hunters were had gone there. I mean, whether they were amateur ghost hunters, I don't know what it means to be a professional ghost hunter, but they were ghost hunters nonetheless, had gone there, and they had claimed that they had taken some pictures inside the building and that some of the pictures had ghost orbs and faces, but they could even see faces. I should add, this is a private residence. We'll be talking about a couple businesses a little bit later that would be delighted if you stopped by and tried to invest- investigate this ghost story. But this is a private residence. I mean, the sidewalk is free for all, but, you know, don't... And, and, and it's sort of well-known, is it, in the New York tourism circle that is, this it, is a haunted residence? It is one of the most haunted places and has been for over 100 years. So Do no you think one, the people who live there know about this? I, uh, they uh, they all they all know about it. They probably were told. Some of them might have even moved in because of it. <laughs> sure. There's a little Mark Twain plaque, but it's very difficult to see because it's all sort of shaded and gloomy. 
Right, because the light doesn't work. Well, it didn't when I was there. So that, my friends, is that the is house a of death. Spooky, spooky story. On April nineteenth, nineteen ninety-five, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Lighten us up here, Tom, but give us in the spook room. Well, I'm going to talk about Dorothy Parker and the round table. All right. (laughs) So you're going to take us back. We're talking more about writers. Before we talk about this table, we should just mention the hotel itself, the Algonquin, which is at 59 West 44th. Now, the Algonquin opened in 1902 and was originally called the Puritan. It wouldn't keep that reputation for very long. In fact, Frank Case, who would later take it over and was the general manager early on, uh, advised the owner to change the name to Algonquin once, once he kind of realized that the Algonquin tribe was one of the first tribes on the island. That was, so that, they were actually doing it for a historical reason? You know, the, the Indians were there before the Puritans. So there was a nod to history. Okay. Frank Case took over the hotel in 1907. He would buy it in 1927 for a million dollars. Now, when he took it over, many of the things, the traditions, the sort of aura of the Algonquin come Mm -hmm. from this era when Frank Case ran it. And he ran it until he died in 1946. Well, it has a very trapped-in-time feel to certain parts of it, which I really like. And it banks on that. And, you know, it, it, well, because it was a meeting place for writers and poets and editors and actors and playwrights and such, it became famous in the literary circles. In fact, for a long time, uh, traveling writers were able to spend a night for free at the Algonquin if they would just leave an autographed copy of their book. Oh, very clever. Because, you know? I mean, if you roll the dice, one of them is eventually going to become quite famous. But in 1919, a group of these sort of poets and writers and playwrights... Because by then, a lot of people had been there and very familiar with it. It's become a little bit and like... Well, a, it was central. I mean, there it was on 44th Street in the center of Midtown. Right. A group gathered and called themselves the Vicious Circle. This group included people such as Dorothy Parker... Mm-hmm. Uh, Harold Ross, who was the editor and founder of the New Yorker magazine, George Kaufman, playwright, uh, Robert Benchley, an actor, Alexander Wolcott, the New York Times uh, drama critic, Harpo Marx was a member. I he didn't would know go. that. Yes, actor, uh, writer, card shark, he's not who Harpo you, Marx. He's not who you picture. 
around the table? And, well, his brother Groucho actually didn't like it. He wasn't into the word games and the sort of self-aggrandizing um, shenanigans that took place there. And I think a lot of self-congratulatory spirits right, right. about the table is people imbibed and spirits. And, <laughs> and so people starting in 1919 knew that they could go to this table, which at first was a rectangular table in the Oak Room, which was the restaurant yes. there, and would later become, as the group got larger, it was moved to the Rose Room, and they were put at a big round table. This was a place where people could go for lunch, and it started in 1919 and continued on for 10 years. By the 1930s, the group had kind of piddled out, or people had gotten over it, or some, some people had moved to, out of New York. Some had died. Some had died, right? Yeah, sure. So Frank Case, the manager, when he was asked about this, you know, whatever happened to, to the vicious circle? He said, well, what became of the reservoir 5th and 42nd? <laughs> These things don't last forever. They don't last forever, but some of the spirits do. Some oh. of the spirits of these celebs. Some of these jovial... So just as Mark Twain may be haunting downtown, it's too bad he can't take some sort of a ghost subway. And <laughs> a ghost train. A ghost train and come up and visit some of these talents at the Algonquin. Indeed, because it's said that today the ghosts of Dorothy Parker, of Walcott, even of Harpo Marx, are still around. Guests claim to see the ghosts in their guest rooms, walking up and down the hallways. During a renovation of the Rose Room, everything was being respected except a framed photo of Dorothy Parker, which fell on its face when they moved the round table. And so hotel guests would sometimes see some Hotel of these guests people. have seen some of these walking up and down the hallways. In fact, it's just taken as as fact that that these ghosts haunt the Algonquin, that every New Year's Eve at the stroke of midnight, the kitchen staff comes out banging pots and pans to cl make a clamor and scare away the spirits for another year. I don't know if I'd want to scare them away. I'd imagine like these, you know, dandies with their ghost <laughs> martinis and ghost slippers walking through the hallways. I think that they'd be quite a lot of fun. No, I don't think I'd want to scare them away either. I mean, this group played charades over lunch, and they were playing a game also simply called the I Can Give You a Sentence game, where you would throw somebody a word and they had to come back at you quickly with a sentence. Dorothy Parker famously, Greg, I know this is off, this is like the furthest thing from spooky, <laughs> yeah. but she was famously given the word horticulture. And what was her answer? You can lead a whore to culture, but you can't make her think. <laughs> That's Dorothy Parker, and I'll have what she's having. Well, I and hopefully she is haunting there, and uh, and I'll throw her a word if I see her. <laughs> it might it might be a scream, but she'll have a retort for it, I'm sure. So, can you bring us back into spooky territory? Well, I because I only have Dorothy falling off a wall. Well, <laughs> well, I am going to definitely take you to spooky territory, and you know we've we've been very Manhattan centric here. We're going to take a ferry pay the ferryman and go to Staten Island for the very next ghost story. Mm. Staten Island is, by the way, um, known as one of the most haunted places on in all of New England. Did you know that? I did not know that. <laughs> so the story that I'm about to tell, it's a story about family. It's a holiday story. It's something you may want to share with your family around the holidays if you hate them. 
It's centered at a small cemetery. It's in this uh, in, in northwest Staten Island, in this neighborhood that's called Graniteville. It was a, it was a small town in Staten Island. You know, sadly, this cemetery is by a four lane street, and there's like a Rite Aid right next to it, so it sort of takes away the ghostly feel to it. There are uh, have been some sightings of of a woman named Emmeline Van Pelthausman, and I believe she may be holding her daughter Annaliza, and they were victims of who was later called in the press. The Witch of Staten Island. Now, Staten Island in 1837 was not a part of New York. It was a fishing outpost of about 10,000 people. A man by the name of George Houseman, uh, he had a house here. He was a captain of an oyster ship, and he was currently away in Virginia. His sister, Polly Bodine, was staying with George's wife, who was Emmeline, and George's young daughter, and his young daughter, Annaliza, who was 20 months old. So Polly was staying with them because it was winter time. It, that, as a matter of fact, our story starts in Christmas of 1843. Two young boys were coming home from a skating party when they saw some smoke coming out of the house of George Houseman. So they rang the alarm and all the townspeople came and they burst down the door and they're all thinking like, well, luckily no one will be home. I mean, it's Christmas. They're probably out doing something. They're out visiting people. Then they sort of, they enter, they, they put out the fire. The house is still filled with smoke. It's very, very cold. But they look into the kitchen and then there's some baskets of pumpkins, like the pumpkin right there on the table, pumpkins and, and things. But then there's something right next to it. It's a scene of completely grisly horror. And I'm sorry, this is going to be a little gory. It's, it's George's wife, Emmeline, and she's been a attacked with an axe. Her arms have been broken. Her throat has been cut. Her little daughter is laying right next to her with her skull crushed. The bed sheets inside are covered in blood. Polly has disappeared. Suspicion had immediately went to Polly. Now, why exactly? She was sort of considered a wanton woman, a fallen woman, if you will. She had a very spurious reputation. She had separated from her husband. Um, her son was an apprentice at a drugstore on Canal Street the, in 1843, a fairly new street. Newish, yeah, um, 30 years old. And his employer was her lover. These rumors spread that she had been seen in town uh, selling silverware that had the initials EH on it for Emmeline Houseman. And later that day, she was seen spending some money on a green hooded cape and green veils. So obviously, these stories spread. On New Year's Eve, just a week later, Polly would actually be standing on the landing of the precursor to the Staten Island Ferry. Um, she was drunk. Someone recognized her by her, quote, long hooked nose. Keep in mind, these are all from very biased news <laughs> reports. So she was captured and she was sent to county jail. When she was in jail, while she was there, Polly gave birth to a stillborn baby. All of, so naturally, because of all of these different things, that spread into all the newspapers, and it was a huge... But did people know she was pregnant when she was hauled off to jail? I'm not quite sure on that. They, they make it appear as if it just happened, as if she's just some sort of evil, you know? I mean, gotcha. so I would imagine that you would know, but for the, for the first trial, one of the first reporters that covered this story was a reporter from Philadelphia by the name of Edgar Allan Poe. And he said that, I mean, he had, you know, because writing back then, you could sort of infer your own opinion into the stories. He basically said that he thought that, that she was guilty, but that they would screw it up in, in the Staten Island's simple court system. Curiously, though, George Houseman, now this is Polly's brother and the husband of the woman who had been horribly murdered and, as, and the father of the poor girl that died. Gotcha. 
He actually stood by Polly this entire time. He claimed, my wife and child are gone. That is past. I can get another wife. I can never get another sister. And in, and, Curious. <laughs> in fact, he did get another wife later and from Virginia. Edgar Allan Poe was actually kind of right because the first case was a little botched. The first trial was totally botched. So a second trial was held against mm-hmm. Polly Bodine. It was held in Manhattan. So naturally, it was much greater fanfare. All the newspapers covered it. The case was particularly popular with women, and, the, and it was sort of seen as scandalous at the time because there was some very salacious details being uh, thrown out during this. Who else gets into the picture here? This case was so notorious that P.T. Barnum, who just happened to be opening his American Museum right up the street from the trial, had an entire wax homage to her, which, and that's where the title <laughs> The Witch of Staten Island comes from. But he represented her as a woman who was like 80 years old, I mean like an old withered hag, and that she had an axe, and like there were body parts, like, you know, wax. It was like a scene of gruesome terror. Polly, being, of course, the uh, trial of the century, she had some, a superstar representation, one of the biggest lawyers in New York at the time. And Tom, guess what his name was? His name was Clinton DeWitt. <laughs> Not DeWitt Clinton. No, Clinton DeWitt. He was what, a very... did they run out of names in New York City or something? <laughs> well, just... It's like a recycled name. <laughs> well, it's, it's like, I mean, I'm not quite sure. I mean, I hope he, maybe he was named in honor. I mean, in, in honor of the great statesman. Are you sure there wasn't a comma? There's no, this, I swear to God. No, I swear to God. Clinton DeWitt is, was his name. Anyway, this trial was also even more botched because it was just there was like way too much attention to it. You know, witnesses were changing their stories. All these rumors kept getting thrown in and treated like truth. It was declared a mistrial. She was convicted, and then they threw the whole thing out. So they had to have one final trial. They moved it out to New Jersey because there was they couldn't find anyone who didn't know anything about the trial. So they actually had to move it to another state. Sure. And so they moved to New Jersey, and Polly was found. Innocent. Her first, reportedly, her first words to her lawyer were, Can't I sue Barnum now? So, but fortunately, not surprisingly, her reputation was ruined. Polly returned to her home and she rarely left her house and lived back in Staten Island for almost 50 years. She would die in 1892. However, the real murderer was never really found. We haven't really, they never found the real murderer of Emmeline. There's actually a lot of modern crime solvers who have looked into this tale and actually do think that Polly really was the murder, murderer and that she really did it. So, so today they do say that, that the ghosts of Emmeline and her daughter, daughter still walk the cemetery and in the area where Emmeline's house used to be, where Polly had you know reportedly murdered them, there has recently been seen a vapor in the shape of a person just across the street from from that from that area they claim it's a vapor a ghostly vapor and people wonder could that be the real murderer and there you have the story of the witch of staten island okay tom to end this spooky extravaganza why don't you take us back to manhattan and further back in time well and i do mean well <laughs> I'm going to tell you about the murder at Manhattan Well. A well in Manhattan? We must be really going back a little bit. We're going back to 1799, and we are back in, in Soho, 
now, and we're going to Spring Street, the intersection of Spring and Green. A very, it's a, it's a very fashionable neighborhood. Lots today, of clothing stores. Today it is, and I, I walked by this intersection on my, my way home from work tonight, just to see if I could find the Manhattan Well, where it was, where mm-hmm. this took place. There's still a long alleyway that takes you back to the scene of the crime, and remember that there was a whole swampland because everybody was in the southern tip, of course. Of, Manhattan Island. And this was all yeah, it was all very swampy, marshy stuff here. And in from this area. Dwayne Street, right by City Hall today, north up to what is today Spring Street, that was a big swamp called Lispinard's Meadows. Mm-hmm. Water flowed up from the Collect Pond, which was on this piece of land, up toward this this area in the northeast corner where they would dig this well. The Collect Pond itself would be drained in 1803 and filled in and of course canal street built a few years later but before that we just rewind to 1799 lots of people lived in boarding houses including our friend elma sands elma elma sands elma sands was 22 and she lived in a boarding house run by her cousin catherine ring and her husband at franklin and greenwich street so sort of Tribeca City Hall area. So Catherine was a milliner. She ran a millinery business. <laughs> a mil- not in the mil- she, not the military. A, mil- a millinery. A millinery. She was a millinery. Hatmaker. Uh, and she had twenty women working for her, including Elma in Catherine's house. She had some other family members, like Elma. Um, her husband's sister lived there, as well as a young guy named Levi Weeks. Now Levi was a carpenter, a young guy. He lived upstairs in a room with his apprentice. This was normal back in the day to to live with your apprentice, and in the case of Levi, to even share the same bed. So, I'm getting close to your your supervisor, aren't you? I think there are laws against this sort of thing today. <laughs> Levi and Elma were both living in the same house, and they were engaged secretly to be married. Neither of them wanted to get the word out, but everybody kind of knew because. Because Elma had already spread the word to Catherine and to her sister. When you're in a millinery, the news, <laughs> news spreads quickly Quicker in a millinery. than a ribbon around a hat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, this house was just five minutes away by sleigh. There was a one-horse sleigh. It would take five minutes to go up Greenwich Street, cut across Spring Street to get to this very well, the Manhattan Well. So on the night of Sunday, December 22nd, 1799, at 8 p.m., Levi had come home, Elma was already at home, and they boarded a sleigh to run off and get married. This was the night that they were going to get married. Elma had been sick, she had a cold, and so Catherine had instructed her to run off to a neighbor's and get a muff for her hands to keep her, to keep her warm. Catherine was a little bit nervous about this. She wasn't quite sure what struck her as odd, except that they had been, you know, moving around in the night. They had already been sleeping together upstairs. It's documented. It would come out in the courts later. Ooh. Unfortunately, Greg, they, they didn't go off to get married that night. Elma would actually never return to the house on Greenwich Street. Levi, in fact, even denied that he ever left with Elma. He said that she went upstairs to her room. And in fact, it's true. Catherine did see Elma go up the stairs to her room and Levi was downstairs. And then 
Catherine went off and she tended to her own child who was upstairs and she heard the latch on the door go shut and the two, well, she just assumed had gone off together. Later on in trial, several witnesses would say that they saw Elma actually on a sleigh with some other men take off at the same time. Curious. In fact, a, a homeless woman who had fallen and hurt herself and in the process of this entire thing, Elma had stopped and asked if this woman was okay and and a man had beckoned her back to the site come on we're in a hurry that's all we know about that until at about 8 15 or 8 30 there were neighbors who had already gone to sleep around the well on spring street and they heard somebody screaming murder oh murder save me and they looked out the window and they saw a man standing at Manhattan Well. They didn't see a woman, but they saw a man kind of over the well. At 10 p.m., about an hour and a half later, Levi, mm-hmm. there's a knock at the door. He opens it and it's his apprentice coming in for the night. Catherine has come down the stairs and she sees Levi there. Levi doesn't quite look right. Catherine says, Where, where's Elma? And Levi says, oh, I don't, I don't, where is Alma? I don't know. Is she Alma? Catherine thinks maybe she's gone off to return the muff to the neighbor. On Monday, the next day, neighbors notice that there's a track from a single sleigh going by the well. And there's also a board missing on the top of the well that had been covering it to keep it from freezing. Now, five days later, there are boys playing by the well, playing ball, and they found a muff floating on top of the well. Meanwhile, Levi had approached the family was trying to get the family to sign off on a statement that there was nothing between him and Alma, that they weren't lovers of any kind. Well, the family knew better and refused to sign this. On January 2nd, just a couple days later, Elias Ring, the man of the house, took matters into his own hand and went to the well and pulled out Alma's body with a pole. So she had died several days before that, and we assume on that fateful night. Levi claimed that he was with his well-connected brother and his family the whole time and that he had documented proof of where he was at all times and that there was no ability for him to take off and he never left with Alma in the first place. And he had some high-powered lawyers, Greg. He had hired the defensive team of Hamilton and Burr. Alexander Hamilton no, and Aaron Burr. No, wait, they were they both were so Levi obviously clearly had a lot of money. Yes, he his really family did. It, actually he came from a pretty wealthy family and his brother ran a well-connected construction company. It was a very unlikely event and in fact it seems that historians have been digging into why this would have they're not surprised that Hamilton would have been representing him because he was from a well-connected family etc. Burr they're a little bit more curious about, but I think it was an election year, and that maybe it was good for to get latched onto a case like this. It could be a lot of get a lot of it attention. Was high profile, and so they worked together on this, and they devised and concocted really a sort of scandalous defense for him, saying that poor Alma was actually promiscuous and in fact suicidal, and that there was no evidence linking Levi to it. And the evidence about them being engaged was not allowed in the court. And the judge actually wouldn't let it be presented at all. So the jury never heard it. And at the end of the testimony, the judge looked at the jury and pretty much instructed them to rule in favor of the defense. <laughs> and our Levi was let off the hook. So we don't, do we know who, who then murdered our Miss Sands? We pretty much assumed that it was Levi. And he got out of it. 
According to a story, Catherine Ring, when she heard about the jury's verdict, pointed at the team of Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton and the judge and screamed, If thee dies a natural death, I shall think there is no justice in heaven. Wow, and very, very weird considering what happened to Alexander Hamilton. And the judge who in 1829 left his room at a hotel and was never seen again. There's a building that's now under construction. It's a loft apartment building. Right now, the bottom floor is under construction. It's kind of a spooky grayish green. There's a little alleyway behind it that leads to the back of the restaurant, which is attached to this building, which is a Manhattan Bistro. Manhattan Bistro, yes. Right? But down this alleyway, you will find the approach to the well. And and she haunts there to this day. Elma is seen wandering up and down Spring Street. I've heard that she's even she even haunts the Manhattan Bistro. That's some good weird spooky history stuff that you can just wander down the street and find. Thank you, Tom, and thank you guys for listening to our spooky Halloween edition of the Bowery Boys. We also have some exciting news for you, iTunes folk out there. If you have been, if you've noticed, we've taken a lot of our old episodes off of our regular feed. We are starting a brand new feed called Bowery Boys Archive, which you can now get it on iTunes. And that essentially is our all of our old episodes, but we've cleaned them up, we've remixed them, we've uploaded them to like new, more superior sound. If you'd like to, you know, revisit some of them or if you haven't heard them, those will be up soon. So thank you for joining us on our spooky night together. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next week. When you visit California, childhood rules. If you don't remember how awesome childhood is, just ask yourself. What would kids do? Dance to a giant organ played by ocean waves? Yep. Camp in floating tree houses hundreds of feet off the ground? Check. Jump in a big tub of mud on purpose? Call it rejuvenation. We don't care. Just pack your fun pants and let childhood rule your family vacation. If you need help, ask your kids. Start planning at visitcalifornia.com.